Hello, readers. Louise Wilder has been a copywriter for Penguin Books for 25 years, during which she has produced around 5,000 blurbs. And she's sharing that expertise, as well as her love for books and writing, in the new book, Blurb Your Enthusiasm, an A to Z of Literary Persuasion. Louise, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So because there are a couple of different definitions for the word blurb, and I'll be honest, when I first heard about your book, I was thinking of the other definition. What are you speaking of when you talk about the fact that you have written around 5,000 blurbs during the course of your 25-year career as a copywriter at Penguin? Um, yeah, this is a really contentious point, isn't it? The word blurb, I guess, because um, in the US with you, um, it's it means a review or an endorsement from an author, you know, from another author that's usually given for an author's work in advance. And that's the common use of it. Whereas um, in the UK here, we, we more likely use it to mean um, a piece of descriptive copy about a book that, that appears on the book. So um they have different meanings um but they they come i mean the, the word initially it, it was invented by an american author um as you you might have read in the book um he wrote a, a like a comic book um you know a funny book called are you a bromide and an ad, advert for this book um there's an image of a woman and it says miss belinda blurb in the art of blurbing and it's it's such a really silly sort of lampoon of literary hype and it talks about how this book is going to make you want to crawl through jungle and bite someone on the neck and it's utterly ridiculous and so i think ever since then we probably associate the word blurb whether we use it in the american or the british sense to mean a bit of hype you know that's maybe a bit over the top we might not necessarily believe it <laughs> And what you hope is a decent summary of what somebody can expect within the pages. So think about if you're at a bookstore, you look at the jacket. Hopefully it's just the, uh, the front part of the jacket, as we'll get to in a little bit, or maybe the back half. But is that it is that summary that you read that gives you an idea of what exactly it is that the book is about. It may help you out with a genre or just the overall tone of the book as well. Absolutely. Yes, it's so true. And I think... Um... I think hopefully you'll agree. I think it's more than just a summary or synopsis as well. It ideally, you know, if it's well written, it should it should be like you know a little miniature story as well in itself. Um, a lot of writers have um, compared you know writing a blurb to something like a sonnet or a detective novel in the sense that it has a form that you follow and um, a very sort of tight structure. And so I think ideally, you know, it should be something that's entertaining and, and intriguing in its own right. So it's, it compresses the story, but it also invites the reader in. Yeah, you do get a ton of creative license. And I'm going to be honest, as somebody who reads a lot of books for this podcast, I am jealous of the job that you get to do. You get to read books and you get to think of ways to creatively help pitch those books to prospective readers. How did you get into the business of blurbing to begin with, Louise? Oh, yeah. It is a great job. I know. <laughs> I feel bad saying this. It's brilliant. <laughs> I guess I've done it since the last century. So, you know, <laughs> um, you would hope that I would enjoy it. Um, yeah, I I'd started in publishing. So what, it's actually 26 years ago now, um, which seems crazy. 
um so you know half half my lifetime ago and um I initially started working in the publicity department so PR you know sending out press releases and things which I don't think I was very well suited to but I loved writing press releases and thinking you know what's really going to hook a journalist into this book how can I sum it up um and so it all came from that and then I was lucky enough to get a job in this department that was solely dedicated to writing blurbs which was just such an amazing time it you know, sort of like you know pinch yourself <laughs> you can't believe you're doing this for a living um and now things have changed slightly and I mean I work within a marketing team um but the aim is the same you know it's to Im invite a reader into a book and encourage them to read it um which is brilliant so I guess the process has probably changed for you over time. As you get better at something, you figure out ways to become more efficient at it. So what does that process currently look like for you? I mean, is it a matter of literally reading every page of the book that you're planning on blurbing? How much time do you have to read the book? And then how much time do you have to come up uh, with that blurb afterwards? Because if I'm doing the math correctly, you've been writing about 200 blurbs a year going back 25, 26 years. Yeah. Now it's a lot <laughs> yeah I do feel a bit like a, a blurb machine sometimes I'm just <laughs> churning them out <laughs> but um I I do try and read as much of the book as I can um it completely varies you know if it's a weighty non-fiction tome of about 800 words I confess I will not read the whole thing I'll read the introduction I'll have a flick through I'll look at the index um I'm like uh, Harry Burns in When Harry Met Sally and that I will always read the ending of every single book. I try not to do it in my own personal reading, but it's quite a hard habit to break. Um, but with fiction, I do try and read the whole thing if I possibly can. You know, I might not if it's a very, very well-known classic that I've read before or, you know, everyone knows the story to. Um, but, you know, usually I will try and read it because I just want to know what happens at the end and I'm not going to give away the ending but I want to know where the story is going to go and I need to if you know if I think if you're creating a mood around a story you have to know where it ultimately ends up so I will read I will take tons of notes I will try and get a sense of the writer's voice because I think what people want to hear is the writer's voice and not my voice um, and I'll pick out details and facts because I think those are so much more interesting than adjectives, as I'm sure we'll go on to <laughs> discuss. Oh, yeah. um, and then I will sort of, having done all that, I will try and then pretend that I haven't read the book, if that makes sense. It's kind of, you know, stepping outside of it, I suppose, and then trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who will know absolutely nothing about it, which I suppose, you know, it's a similar technique to journalism. And I think, you know, when you're trying to tell someone about something and they they might know absolutely nothing so you have to get your message across clearly as well so there are definitely certain techniques that you have you know start with a good hook try and make an emotional connection try and tell a story that's got drama and tension within it um and you know end with a bang <laughs> or a mystery <laughs> Well, it's interesting. You just mentioned adjectives and I hadn't thought about this before, but a lot of authors are apparently opposed to adjectives, even though everybody uses adjectives. We have to. It's one of the three mm -hmm. uh, major bits of speech that we have to go along with verbs and nouns, of course. Uh, where do you fall on adjectives and just how liberally or conservatively do you use them when you're coming up with a blurb? Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, that some people, some writers really hate adjectives with a passion, <laughs> which I didn't quite realise either. Um, you know, there, um, uh, there are tons of them. 
there's um, Elmore Leonard who said, you know, if, if something looks like writing, then, you know, I rewrite it. Um, and lots of other writers who just really don't like them at all. I think Hemingway, uh, Mark Twain. I think Twain said, "When you when you catch an adjective, then kill it." <laughs> so you know they provoke quite violent reactions in people. Um, and I can sort of understand why, because it's that rule of writing, which you know the the familiar rule, which is show don't tell. So I suppose rather than trying to describe a you know a character. Um, in a novel as you know sinister or something like that or to describe a book as groundbreaking groundbreaking I suppose I try and think well why is that the case why is that person sinister why is this book so amazing and try and get to something concrete if that makes sense um I, th I think you know it can be so much more powerful um I think like James Baldwin said you know he talked about having a sentence as clean as a bone and you know I understand that that you know this desire to remove extra stuff that feels unnecessary um rather than having some kind of hazy abstraction that you that you end up with something concrete um there are lots of examples in my book but there's um hillary mantel's books um about the tudors uh, which were really successful over here and one of them is um called bring up the bodies and i there's a description i like on it it says this novel is a speaking picture and i think that's a good description it's it, they, it doesn't just say oh it's vivid or it's colorful it's something that sticks in your mind it's um george orwell talked about using pictures and sensations when you write which i i love as an idea because um I think it stops you being lazy you think well you know you have to sort of I think rather than telling somebody why something is great you show them if that makes sense <laughs> oh it makes a lot of sense honestly it really clicked for me after reading through this concept that right. adjectives allow you to not have to think about something in metaphorical terms and when mm. at least I think about uh, whether something ends up resonating a lot, oftentimes there is some sort of comparative illustration being made by the text. And when you're just saying mm -hmm. something is awesome or rad or great or <laughs> horrible, uh, it allows you to uh, avoid really coming up with a great comparison that will sink in with the viewer or reader that much more. So true. So many authors also don't like subtitles, but I got to be honest, <laughs> as somebody who reads a lot of nonfiction, Louise. I enjoy a good subtitle. Oftentimes the subtitle can give you a better indication of what that book is about than the title itself. So where do you fall on subtitles and what makes for a good one? Um, yeah, I, I understand your your love of subtitles and I, I'm, I'm definitely not a hater. As <laughs> you know, there are many haters out there, aren't there, when it comes to all sorts of things. Um, but I think they can be incredibly useful. Um, I think one writer described them as a bit of a wallflower at a party in the sense that they're not as glamorous as the title, you know, or maybe a, a snazzy strap line that you'd see on the front of a book. They're quite, they're quite functional and often they get forgotten after, you know, a book is published. They tend not to become famous. Um, another writer compared them to like your middle name. So <laughs> in a sense, it's not something that you shout about. But um, but they can be so useful, especially when you have, there's, you know, there's quite a trend for, you know, fairly mysterious titles sometimes. You know, the subtitle needs to do a lot of heavy lifting with nonfiction. Um, and I think if they're done really well, you know, that they can also enhance a title. Um, there's obviously the, the 
Michael Moore's book Stupid White Men, which you know was was a huge hit. It was probably getting for 20 years ago now, aren't we? Um it had um and other sorry excuses for the state of the nation mm. as its subtitle, um, which I thought was, you know, it's kind of like a, a jab following up on the punch of the title. It's just an, a really nice addition to it. Um, and I think if a subtitle is done well, it can it can really add something to a book and create a mood as well, you know, and, and appeal to a certain kind of audience. There's um, a book that did very well here a few years ago called Quiet. It was a self-help book and the subtitle was, um, I think it was The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which I just think is very clever because it, it flatters a kind of certain <laughs> bookish reader um, and makes them feel special. So, yeah, you know, that these words can work really hard and, and hopefully entice us into the world of a book. And I guess it also does make sense that a subtitle is typically more of a tool, uh, tool with nonfiction than fiction. Like a lot of times mm -hmm. with a novel, it'll have the title and then it'll just say a novel or yes. you get that with a memoir as well. So maybe the subtitle isn't quite as necessary with works of fiction. I think so. Yeah, I think um I, d I don't know about you. I find it odd sometimes when things say a novel on the front. I mean, maybe it's just because the title is so <laughs> outlandish and odd that people just need to be reassured. I, I assume that's the case. Um, but I often feel it's not hugely necessary. And I think um, with, yeah, there, there was a fashion, you know, centuries ago now um, that, that uh, fiction the novels would often have subtitles so you had um Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Hardy it was a pure woman obviously he was making a point there with his subtitle um and Vanity Fair a novel without a hero again it's you know it's a, a wry kind of statement isn't it that that the author is making um and uh, uh, Animal Farm was a fairy story again you know it it's a nice little bit of irony a lot of the time with those subtitles maybe we should do it start doing it again you know <laughs> very true i think it'd be interesting to see that trend reverse itself now yeah. uh, i guess we're talking a lot about what authors don't like today authors seem to be <laughs> very crusty people they don't like a whole lot of people's writing they don't <laughs> They don't like adjectives, they don't like subtitles, and they also, a fair number of authors, actually don't like blurbs either. One of the most uh, famous examples, of course, is J.D. Salinger, who refused subtitles on uh, Catcher in the Rye for the longest time. Now, I'm sure since he has been deceased, we do get subtitle or we do get uh, blurbs, rather, occasionally with Catcher in the Rye. But why are so many authors opposed to blurbs? Yeah, it's it's so funny, isn't it? I think um, that it's actually in Salinger's contract um, that that you can't have any copy on the, on his books at all. I mean, obviously now with in the the digital age, you have far more freedom to describe his books and sell them in other ways. But on the books themselves, nothing. You know, oh, e even even name. still, now that he's deceased, uh, subtitle yeah. or uh, yeah. uh, um, blurbs yeah. are not allowed on his books. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I think that's still the case. I'm sure a friend of mine recently worked on some. Um, maybe I actually will double check that. But as far as I know, this is still the case now, which is really strange. Um, and I guess, you know, it's a suspicion of hype, isn't it? It's And it's an author wanting to control their work. And 
um, be protective of it, I suppose, you know, in, in a sense, I do understand that. Um, because, you know, your your words are very precious to you. And, and it's the idea that someone's going to interpret them wrongly. Um, there's another, I mean, in in the UK, it's quite a famous example of the author Jeanette Winterson, who um, whose books were rejacketed by her publisher, and they were given new blurbs as well, which she hated so much that she publicly burned her own books on social media, like set fire to them in a bonfire to make her point. I mean, I assume that that you know she might have seen these before this occasion, but um, but you know she just wanted to express her annoyance that you know she said they'd they'd made her novels which you know are novels of ideas um she said they'd made them cozy and domestic um and I'm not necessarily sure I agree because I think you know her publishers wanted to appeal to a wide market which is perfectly fair and works can be interpreted in absolutely any way so to a reader who doesn't know anything about her books they probably want to know what happens as well they want to know the story um, but I do understand this tension between what's inside a book and the way it's presented. Um, you know, authors throughout history have um, understandably been, been very worried about the words that describe their books on their books. So George Orwell as well um, worried a great deal about the way his books were described and he had a lot of say over them, you know, quite rightly. <laughs> Yeah, that's understandable. By the same token, you do provide examples uh, from your own career of authors that are very pleasant to work with with regards to blurbs. They may offer some notes here and there, but ultimately they trust you to do a good job with that. It does beg the question, though, do authors ever write their own blurbs? Um, they absolutely do. At certain publishers, I think it completely varies. Um, there are some publishers, uh, like the one that I work at, where they employ copywriters specifically to do this. Sometimes an editor will do it. Sometimes, sometimes an author will. Um, the author Terry Pratchett actually advised that most writers should start writing their own blurbs even before they finish their novels because it can really help you think about structure and where a story is going to go. Um, but, you know, other authors, I think it, mostly it's a collaborative process. You know, anything that I write will always be approved by an author. Um, absolutely. And I will always try and incorporate any changes that they want, unless they try and add hundreds and hundreds of words to something, which, you know, a few do. Um, and one author said to me, you know, this this blurb is so comprehensive now, nobody's going to have to read the book. And um, bless him, you know, <laughs> that's not really the aim. Um, but, you know, we we managed to reach a compromise and and, you know, a lot of authors, I think, especially if they, you know, if they're journalists as well or something like that, they understand the need to, you know, really uh, boil something down to its essence. Did you write the blurb for Blurb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> um, well, sort of is the answer. Um, yeah, I think um, it was a bit of a process because initially... I mean, as with a, a lot of copy, it depends on on the actual format and the space you've got to work with. So um, I think initially we thought it was going to have, you know, a traditional kind of dust jacket. So I actually got six copywriter friends to each write a blurb for me, which was really nice of them. <laughs> Just sort of partly for that reason and as an experiment as well. Um, and they were all completely different. It was brilliant. And in the end, we I can actually show you the, the final book. Um, there isn't 
there's actually a tiny amount of space. So, you know, there was this much space and then the rest of it is lovely review quotes or blurbs, as you would say in the US. Um, and so we couldn't use those because they were just all a bit long. So I put them at the back as an appendix um, because I just thought it was fun to see, you know, how different people interpret a, a work. Um, and I also added a, a blurb, that I, that I, a computer generated blurb by an online blurb generator, which is just crazy, really. Um, and so in the end, it was predictably a bit of a collaboration between my editor and me. Um, and I do say in the book that I think ideally authors probably shouldn't write their own blurbs because they're a bit too close to the book. And I do understand this now having written the book. You know, I think it's really hard to judge your own book in a way that you do other people's um, and to try and kind of see the wood for the trees, I guess. Um, but yeah, I broke my own rule, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you, look, that is uh, that is your job by day. So I certainly understand an <laughs> exception being made for you. But yeah, I get the whole being a little bit clue, too close to things. I mean, you've just asked mm -hmm. somebody to write tens of thousands of words and then you want them to summarize everything they've just hopefully poured their heart and soul into on those pages yeah. in one to 200 words. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 almost cruel, isn't it, to make them do that, I think. <laughs> you did explore some of the uh, all-time great authors and uh, just their thoughts on blurbs and also how they marketed themselves. And interestingly, Charles Dickens was way ahead of his time as a marketer of his own books. How so? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a big Dickens fan. I just I just think he's wonderful. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people are still a bit snobbish about him sometimes because he was so popular and because he was so good at promoting himself. Um, you know, he was incredibly ahead of his time in, in this way. You know, he there are several things he did. I think he created a sense of mystery about himself. Initially, he had this pen name Boz and nobody knew who Boz was. Um, you know, he really built up the suspense around that. Um, and at the time, his novels were serialized um, on a monthly basis. Um, and he made you know, he wasn't the first to do this, but he really made it his own. Um, you know, he deliberately created suspense in the novels and sometimes he would actually respond to what readers liked and wanted. He would add new characters or he would change things in, you know, in response to what readers wanted. So I think, you know, he was a real master of marketing in that sense. And, and I also think that, you know, we think of today as like, oh, no, it's so commercial. You know, there are so many adverts around today. You know, we're bombarded with information. Whereas if you look at the Victorian era, you know, it was exactly the same. There were adverts everywhere. There were adverts on books. There were adverts in books. So I think just as if you're watching TV today, you're used to having your experience kind of broken up by ads. I think the Victorian reader was just the same. So in the, in the Pickwick papers by Dickens, there are ads for like for pills that are going to help your liver and, and things that are going to help your corns and your bunions on your feet. And like, it's just tons of this commercial material. Um, so I think, you know, it was a commercial age and he really embraced it. Um, and, you know, he was a real showman. He loved giving public readings of his books. You know, I think he would put any author tour to shame today. You know, he was absolutely tireless and um, he gave these incredibly dramatic readings. You know, he would often kind of faint afterwards because he was so exhausted from it all. So, you know, I think, yeah, he was he was really the ultimate self-promoter. <laughs> 
No, you mentioned uh, author tours, and that's obviously something that went away during the COVID era. And thankfully, it's starting to come back a little bit. I'm starting to become a little bit concerned, though, Louise, that uh, a lot of these bookstores, because it does save them money, obviously, are choosing to go the Zoom route with the author tour and, and hold something virtually versus doing it in person in the bookstore. Then again, I'm a sucker for the physical copy of a book. I don't know about you, but... I will read books on an e-reader from time to time, just out of necessity. But if I can help it, I'm getting the physical copy. And there's also something about just going to a bookstore and browsing through all the wonderful reads there, too. Oh, I completely agree. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I mean, obviously, Zoom is great because we can do things like this, you know, right. <laughs> we can cross the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but um but yeah, I, I completely agree that in-person is so great. Um, it's such a thrill to go and see an author that you love. Um, and it's such a thrill to hold a book in your hands, isn't it? You think, I don't, I don't think that ever goes away. Um, and I think, yes, it was it was so sad during lockdown that, that you know, bookshops just couldn't really do their jobs. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that's all finished. Um, and that actually, talking of that, there was one thing I write about in my book which is that when bookshops did start gradually reopening after the first lockdown we had in the UK and I think this happened in the States as well someone told me that a lot of um, bookshops display books with their back covers out so that people could read the the blurbs or the synopsis on the back so rather I, than looking at the front which you know obviously felt like a, a moment of vindication for for blurb writers yeah, you know, that's that's a very funny point there for you. And also, it's a nice courtesy by those bookshops. Now, have you gotten to do any in-person events since the release of Blurb Your Enthusiasm? Um, I'm, you know, I'm actually quite new to all of this. <laughs> um, so I've done um, a lot of lovely Zoom interviews like this with people in the States. Um, I've done a few UK interviews as well. Um, but I'm actually doing my first in-person event the weekend after next at a literary festival um in in Wiltshire in England so um yeah that's fingers crossed it will be okay um yeah, I think I'm, I'm excited about it but it's it's a whole new world from you know being behind the scenes in publishing to to being out there in the spotlight it's exciting and and scary at the same time yeah I bet so you've done more U.S. interviews than you have U.K. interviews so far I would I think it's been about half and half um I the my book is actually it's available in the US from the 11th of October I believe is is the pub date with you um so I I think you know that the podcasts seem to be really popular in the states um I think possibly more than they are here so it's been a bit more traditional newspapers and things in the UK and lots of podcasts in the US which which is great it's such an opportunity well I do wonder also because the title is such a good one if it has to do with the fact that curb your enthusiasm <laughs> which is obviously the the play on words that you use for the title is much more popular here in the US and not as well known in the UK or do people yeah. know about Larry David and all his insane antics over there too <laughs> Um, I I mean, I love it. And I know a lot of people who love it in the UK as well. Um, I think actually it's the kind of humour that travels really well oh, and yeah. people really appreciate it here. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, you know, 
it's pretty it's the humor of awkwardness isn't it you know so being British we love that because we're so uncomfortable in our own skins as a nation you know I think a lot of us really like it yeah who doesn't love the asshole who, who can't help himself but to uh confrontations <laughs> in public and in private right so true so we just talked about dickens who has obviously written a number of classics you've blurbed or is it re-blurbed uh, a lot of classics but what <laughs> makes a book a classic louise um oh yeah that i mean there are loads of definitions of this there are you know there are some quite funny ones um one writer said a classic or something you always say that you're rereading rather than reading you know there's there's a lot of kind of cultural cachet attached to these things um and i give a definition which is that it's often something you were forced to read against your will um <laughs> while you were at school um and then hopefully you know in a, a lot of the times in my experience um you either realize at the time or perhaps a few years later when you reread it that it is actually great and there is a reason it's a classic you know something like Jane Eyre I remember being so against when I was young I, was like, I don't want to read about this fusty house and this attic I mean it just sounds terrible and then when I did sit down and read it I was just absolutely enthralled um there's something about that you know that that first person narrator that just grabs you and won't let you go so yeah you know hopefully reading it you know a classic is is ultimately a happy experience rather than one you associate with you know school <laughs> now blurbs tend to be third person you just mentioned the the first person narrative uh do first and second person uh uh perspectives ever come into play when you're writing blurbs and if so what what are the instances mm. there um i think yeah, I, I talk about this, the second person quite a bit because I think it's interesting using the word you. Um, it's a word that I think is often used in advertising. You know, there's a famous recruitment campaign from the First World War, but, you know, your country needs you. And, and um, I think, yeah. I want you. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, um, yeah, of course, you know, in the States you've got that. Um, and, um, but I, and I think, you know, it's something that can obviously it's very forceful but it, you can also make people feel a bit hectored and like you know just leave me alone um but I, I do think um one of the things I I say is that I think if the word you could be replaced by we or everyone then I think it really works um and there are a few blurbs where I I really I think it's used really cleverly um there's there's one um there's a book here by a black british writer it's called british um and it's about you know the experience of um colonialism in this country and it starts with saying you know you're british your parents are british it goes on and it's like so why do people keep asking you where you're from um which i think is something so universal to a lot of people um from ethnic minorities in this country and so I think if you can somehow universalize that word you if that makes sense then I think it can be really effective so you don't have a ton of pet peeves that you mentioned in this book one is blurbs that tend to go on for way too long we touched on that yeah. a bit earlier with authors <laughs> attempting to write their own blurbs or rewrite blurbs as it were but uh, one of your big pet peeves is something that I alluded to at the start of this conversation and that has to do with a blurb that takes up the front and back flaps of a book jacket. <laughs> what is it that you dislike so much about uh, blurbs that are comprised of both? 
Yeah. So now I'm being a hater, aren't I? <laughs> it's like, I hate that. <laughs> you know what, though? I get it, though, because even ever before reading uh, your ideas on things, I found myself annoyed by the fact, like, do I really need to flip to the back now to, to continue this thing? Can, can yeah, we, yeah. It's like, it's just like, why make the reader, the poor reader, you know, who might be standing up in a bookshop looking at tons of stuff, you know, why are you making them do this extra work? <laughs> you know, And I don't believe that anyone that is going to read all that to the end when they're standing in a bookshop you know um and i i think it's really odd it's like this idea that you have to fill up this that some authors editors i think feel that you have to fill every inch of space that's available um and i don't know if it's you know because they want to be taken seriously they want to show that their book is very weighty and important or they want to kind of fill the the space with the kind of sentences that they hope a book reviewer will kind of replicate in some way you know saying how provocative or groundbreaking or amazing it is um so yeah I I, I can I think I sort of know why it's done but um I just I don't think it's fair on the reader and you know their poor eyes you know <laughs> I, I think when I read that when you read you read in an f shape you don't actually read everything so you know your your eyes are kind of going all over the place and you know, the idea that someone's going to read every single word of this, I just think is is a fantasy. <laughs> oh, wow. F-shape. I'm definitely guilty of that at times. I'm also guilty of the E-shape sometimes, too, though, when you ah, read the very beginning right. and you read the very end pretty closely and you just kind of skim through the yeah. But we all have those different strategies. Now, yeah. like you, I love the comedy of the late, great Bill Hicks, fellow Texan, <laughs> fellow native Texan like I am. You even won me over when you quoted him at the start of a chapter. So it should be no surprise to anybody that both of us are fans of well-placed cuss words. When, <laughs> if at all, is it appropriate to cuss in a blurb? Uh, yeah, I love the word cuss. It's such a great word. So I just wanted to say, I, and um, yeah, sadly, we don't really say that word very much here, which is a shame. I guess we say swearing, which is just not as fun as it is cussing. Um, yeah, I, um, I think it's as with so many things, you know, that different literary effects that I talk about, you know, like puns or different types of punctuation. It's, you know, when you use it and using it sparingly and using it wisely um i have absolutely nothing against swearing cussing <laughs> in principle and and there's a lot of research that shows you know that if you use a great variety uh, of rude words um then you have a richer vocabulary overall and um stephen pinker um the psychologist talks about um you know the things that happen in our brains when we read a swear word you know like the you know the really kind of ancient parts of our brains are activated um we might even display physical symptoms like you know getting a bit sweaty when we see a swear word um, because they've got this real emotional charge you know they do get our attention um but also for that reason obviously some people don't like them so you have to think of your audience and i think if you can use them in a funny way like there's a, a book um the life-changing magic of not giving a f i don't know if i can swear on this so i'm not going to um but <laughs> um, but um you know it's funny it makes you laugh there's a contrast but you know the, the, the going on in 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 that that book title so um so i think it's fun um and obviously on on amazon you can't even have the swear word anyway so you have to use um the asterisk which um which again i think can also be quite playful um 
the, the American writer Mary Norris, who um, is also a copy editor, she talks about the, the asterisks as, as um, like little fireworks going off within a word, which I just think is such a lovely description because there is something quite playful about it. So, um, yeah, I think probably the whole point of my book is that language should be fun. So, you know, this is part of it. <laughs> That's uh, another one of those great metaphors, I guess. And boy, speaking of jobs that I'm jealous of, I'm jealous of uh, you getting to write blurbs for a living. I am jealous of the individual who gets to study the positive powers of cuss words for a living. And they've also done the research to find that saying a cuss word when you're in pain can have a sort of anti-pain effect. So for my six and eight-year-old, this is father of the year stuff here, I, I know. Uh, for my six and eight-year-old, we try and teach them the value of words having meaning uh, in terms of the tone, in terms of how you use them, in terms of the audience as well. There are certain situations where it is okay for them to cuss in front of us and they won't get into a lick of trouble. Now, if they're cussing at us, that's a completely different story. But if uh, one of them, you know, bangs their shin or, or mm -hmm. uh, jams their finger on something, if they let an F word fly, I'm probably going to laugh at it and not get any uh, upset in any way, shape or form. Wow, you are a cool parent. <laughs> well, I'm either a cool parent or I'm one that's really going to mess them up as adults. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we both love cussing, Louise, and we both love the ellipsis, that dot, dot, dot that allows for a bit of a pause or maybe a, a bit of a cliffhanger effect on the text that you're writing. Once again, just like with adjectives, I was surprised <laughs> to learn that there are apparently a bunch of ellipsis haters out there. What the hell? Yeah. There. they're so grumpy these writers <laughs> um yeah I think oh the ellipses they really rile the the language pedants don't they that's like their bet noir I think they they think you know they belong to hacks they're they're commercial they're formulaic you know they're kind of lazy but um I don't know I I just think there are some aspects of language that are just beyond our control I don't know if you agree like, I think if you add an ellipsis to the end of a sentence it does make it more mysterious. There's, you know, that there's nothing you can do about it. You know, despite, I think despite ourselves, you know, we do get some kind of sense of mystery from it. And so, you know, you see them all over the place on thrillers. And I think that's absolutely fine. You know, it's, it's perhaps not necessary, but there's one writer who just said, you know, so what, um, you know, the things that aren't necessary make life interesting. So, you know, as a little bit of fun, as a little bit of embellishment, um, yeah, I, I'm all for the ellipsis. <laughs> Look, as much as you and I both love text, text can be difficult because it is so devoid of tone. Now, obviously you have periods exclamation points and question marks that can help out with that, but there aren't a whole lot of other tools you can lean on in that regard. And the ellipsis can really help with that. And I would also argue that it's got a bit, bit of a duct tape quality too. It can be used in lieu of other symbols or punctuation marks that let's be honest, nobody really knows when and how to properly use semicolons, dashes, hyphens, all this, all these other things. Ellipses can fill in for those sorts of things from time to time as well. Mm, it's so true isn't it and and I mean obviously you know as well when you're um part of what I do I guess is is to pull out review quotes you know a quote from a newspaper or an article and to kind of try and splice those together so you know an ellipsis is so useful in in that respect as well um yeah and as you say I think with you know when you get into 
dashes, uh, you know, parentheses, um, semicolons. I, nobody knows how to use those properly, do they? Or there are so many schools of thought that, you know, you're always going to trip yourself up. So, um, yeah, the, the ellipsis is my friend, as is the question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, question marks can be great too. Now I'm going to channel my inner Bill Hicks to uh, state this next question as bluntly as possible. How do you blurb a book that sucks, Louise? <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Um, I suppose I need to be try and be magnanimous and to say that you know I feel you know like people hopefully no book totally sucks um you know you need to try and find something to love in them don't you <laughs> maybe i'm being wildly you've optimistic five, here. you've written five thousand blurbs i'm assuming at least like 50 to 100 of those have no redeemable value <laughs> it could be true um i guess you know i mean like you know every <laughs> There's going to be someone out there who's going to enjoy this book. Presumably, somebody hopes. So the thing you're always doing is thinking of your audience. You know, I think like, who is this book for? Who is this ideal reader? It might not be me. <laughs> you know, it absolutely might not be me. But someone out there is going to to love this book, I hope. Um, and so I need to try and pick the things out that they will love. Um, and, you know, if if the story is completely meandering all over the place or non-existent, then I need to try and pretend that there is a bit of a story or try and boil something down to him. Uh, one writer called me the, the, a book's backbone. You know, I need to try and find that narrative and pin, pinpoint it and, and create a structure. Um, yeah, even if, even if the book doesn't quite live up to it. Have you ever had to pass a book off, whether it just uh, sucks so badly that you couldn't come up with something good, or maybe it's uh, something that struck too close to home? <laughs> no, I, I honestly like, you know, perhaps it's even an even greater challenge when it's <laughs> it's something so terrible. Like, um, I, I have a friend at work, another copywriter, and we have a weekly meeting. Like, it's more just a chat and a gossip, really. And um, and we sit down and, and you know, we'll often look at the the copy that we've written that week. And, and one of us will go like, you know, d nothing happens in this book, does it? And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, you're right. Like, is it really obvious? <laughs> it's like, yeah, try and make it less obvious. <laughs> try and, you know, end it with a question or an ellipsis. <laughs> So while I am the fan of uh, occasional self-help books, I also recognize that a lot of them are just schleppy nonsense. So <laughs> are there some general rules of thumb to writing blurbs for self-help books to uh, keep them from sounding too schleppy uh, for uh, for those blurbs where you're trying to help the reader uh, maintain an interest in uh, whatever they picked up with to begin with? Mm, yeah, I think, well, again, I suppose it's like your your previous question, you know, there's going to be someone out there that this book is for. Um, and I think also, I don't think these books claim to be great literary works. Um, when I asked one writer about it, she said, um, she said, you know, it's like buying a self-help book. It's like paying for a plumber to, to fix my sink or my broken loo you know I I want I want this to fulfill I solve a problem for me you know I've got some issue that needs dealing with and I want it to fix it so um I think yeah that, that I think one thing I noticed that all the bloods for self-help books whatever they're about you know whether about how to get fit um how to deal with pregnancy how to deal with stress in your life 
even the self-help books that kind of mock the self-help genre in some way, they all follow the same pattern, which is they start with a problem, um, then they offer a solution, and then they kind of widen out to, to make a big promise to the reader. And, and I think it's the same pattern across absolutely everything. Mm. I defy anyone to find a self-help book that does not follow this pattern. <laughs> No, they definitely do. I'm curious also, have you ever read a self-help book for the sake of the job and found it actually helping you out in the process? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think... Some of the, I think some are actually great. There's a there's a, a a psychologist in the UK. She's very popular called Philippa Perry. She's married to the artist Grayson Perry, and um, her book, which I've actually got on my shelf somewhere here in this messy room, um, it's called the book you wish your parents had read. And you will be glad and your children will be glad that you did, which I just think is a great title. And um, and I found this book brilliant, even though it wasn't necessarily designed for me. I don't have kids, but my sister who does said, you know, you have to read this book. You're going to understand everything about our childhood when you do. And so um, so I think. Yeah, these these types of books can surprise you. You know, we're all human. We're all flawed creatures. We all have problems. We all have our stuff that needs dealing with. <laughs> the Bible is the most consumed <laughs> book of all time. Have you ever blurbed the Bible? And if not, how would you do so? <laughs> um, I love the fact that we've moved from self-help to the Bible. This is brilliant. <laughs> um, um, I have not written a blurb for the Bible, but uh, a colleague of mine has. Um, and I think if I were to to write one, I think, um, I hope it's not blasphemous to say this, I would just treat it as any other book. Um, I would think, who wants to read this? Who is the audience for this? Um, what's actually in this? What, which version is this, is this? You know, what do they need to know about it? What do they need to know about its history and context and what's actually in it? Is this a new version? Is this a new translation? Um, I feel like, you know, it's probably a book you don't really need to make a big claim for, but so you you can be quite functional and some, sometimes that's fine, you know, just tell people what's inside. Um, yeah, I've... I would not be scared of blurbing the Bible. <laughs> Love that. And I think that's a great answer too. All right. So from self-help to the Bible to erotica. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had to write a blurb for erotic fiction? <laughs> from the sacred to the profane. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I've spoken to a lot of people who've written copy for erotic fiction uh, sadly I don't get to do this I'm, I work in a slightly more serious area of publishing to my great annoyance um, but I've you know I've got friends who've worked on it and um, you know some of them have said you know how the briefs for you know we get all sorts of crazy briefs as copywriters you know it's like you know but sort of like that but not like that you know um, <laughs> so all these things um, and um, ones that you know you know it's it's obviously just a piece of erotic fiction is that you know can you pitch this as a classic love story for all time please <laughs> like, oh yeah yeah sure of course it is um, and another friend of mine who got to work on a poster campaign for this really successful erotic novel and and he came up with the line in the end come and get it I was like oh yeah that's brilliant <laughs> just get to the point <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes those puns, uh, they, uh, they, I know, they hit, I know. <laughs> they hit right at the it's core. It's terrible. 
Uh, terrible, but great at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You got to consider the audience and you got to consider the product as well, I guess. Yeah. All right, last last question, Louise. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the difference in the word blurb and what it means here in the U.S. versus what it means in the U.K., but the word blurb, that secondary meaning, I think is starting to resonate more with people here in the U.S. So what is the difference between blurbs where you are versus where I am here in the United States? Oh, that, that's interesting that, that about the, the meaning of the word may be changing over there, which I wasn't aware of, actually. Um, well, I guess we've covered, you know, the, the difference in the meaning of the word itself between the, the UK and the US. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I devote a chapter just to looking at the difference between blurbs in the States and blurbs over here, because I just find it really fascinating how different our books look sometimes. You know, not only do they have different cover designs, um, but the way the covers are used, I just find really fascinating. I think that in the UK, often the back of a book is it's a vehicle for design as well as words. Whereas I think in the US, it's more of a vehicle for for words. You know that there's a lot of copy on US books. Um, and I get the sense, you know, that it's trying to cover all bases, you know, trying to be completely comprehensive. Um, there are often lots of adjectives, lots of adverbs, you know, it's very verbose. Um, and who knows if this is down to cultural differences, you know, it's so easy to make these sweeping statements, isn't it? Um, but so I, I spoke to a lot of uh, Americans I know in publishing and, you know, there were all sorts of explanations that, you know, it's just like American speech is, you know, far, far more um hyperbolic you know there's a greater commitment to diversity possibly so you know you want to have you know a review from you know the new york times and the dallas morning news or whatever you know you just want to cover all your bases there's the love of reading groups in the u.s so perhaps you know there's just lots and lots of extra wordiness i think you know on the book jackets but also at the back you have loads of reading group questions you know often some extra material i mean who knows really i've got my own pet theory as well that um that, you know, in some senses, I think America has greater reverence for its language than we do here, which might seem a slightly counterintuitive thing to say. But, you know, I think, you know, you're the land of the spelling bee and long form journalism. And so I think in some senses, you know, I think you have a real respect for the written word, possibly that we don't have so much over here. I think especially in England, you know, we're we're quite um cynical <laughs> and, um, and and you know our our journalism tends to be a lot shorter you know we possibly don't always treat our language with the respect it deserves but you know I don't know that could just be <laughs> complete speculation once again maybe a little bit too close to the issue because I kind of feel that way about the U.S. from time to time especially if I spend yeah. five minutes on Twitter and just watch- <laughs> Watch people, journalists included, just hurl ugliness at one another back and forth. Well, oh, Twitter is just a bear pit, isn't it? No, I, I do understand the app. Yeah, I think maybe it's the grass is always greener and we just always admire other people's cultures rather than our own. <laughs> right. As my friend once put it, Twitter is pretty much the digital bathroom wall on the internet. She is so Louise Wilder. The new book is Blurb Your Enthusiasm, an A to Z of Literary Persuasion. Louise, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for a book that I think is as observant in the world of blurbing, the ins and outs of blurbing, as Larry David is walking around the city of Los Angeles. (laughs) What a great compliment. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. 
You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.